Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to chapter 10, verse 24. Should we pray before we read God's word? Almighty God, we pray to you. And just as soldiers and suffering people in this veil of tears have often prayed to the living God to speak to them, so we pray to you, Father, to speak to us this morning through the Holy Spirit by your word as we read this amazing portion of our Lord Jesus' story. Amen. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go! I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal those who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. 
No one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. But I think the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. That's the beginning of a famous book by Dr. Seuss called How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Some of you know that book, or maybe the film. In The Grinch, there's a mean fellow with his skin all green and his teeth all yellow, and he's called The Grinch, and he doesn't like Christmas at all. He hates Christmas, and he hates anybody taking any joy in Christmas. He does actually take uh, a little bit of joy in other things. I realized this as I rewatched it this week. Um, he, he quite likes his dog, Max. He takes a lot of joy in Max, the dog. He quite likes a good cup of coffee, and he quite likes his work. His work is stealing Christmas from everybody else, but you know he takes joy in that task that he has. So he does have joy, he just not in Christmas. And as Dr. Sue says, his heart is two sizes too small. What's giving you joy at the moment? I mean, think back over your weekend. What brought you happiness and joy? Was it food and drink? Friends? Family? A good lie-in? A bit of exercise? Something like that? Maybe. Maybe it was coming to church this morning and being amongst other Christians which brought you joy. Look, all of those things are good gifts from God. And yet, there's this weird moment in our Bible reading this morning where Jesus um, meets the 72. They're coming back from ministry, good ministry, like demons submitting to Jesus in, um, in his name. And they say, Lord, this is amazing. We've had this brilliant work mission trip. This is so good. And Jesus says, yes, but don't take joy in that. Rejoice, verse 20, this is in verse 20 if you want to follow do not rejoice that the, Holy, that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's like that, yeah, he's saying, look, I see your joy, but it's like your heart is two sizes too small. I just want to, you know, I'm going to expand it for you and show you the things that I'm taking joy in. So if you want a bit of that this morning, and you think, oh, that sounds good, a bit of everlasting joy that never goes away, then let's listen to Jesus' words. It actually says in the verse afterwards, Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. So he knows about this better than anybody else alive. Let's look at what makes him joyful. We've been listening to Luke's gospel together as a church. And this is actually a crucial turn in the story. So Luke chapter 9 verse 51, it says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In the old-fashioned Bibles it says he set his face towards Jerusalem. I think we're supposed to think of Isaiah 50 where the servant uh, set his face like flint just that absolutely steely eyed determination a bit like you know, I've been watching rugby recently on the telly and um, you know when you get a rugby player they set their face towards the try line and nothing's going to stop them as they head towards it it's like Jesus Christ heading towards Jerusalem to die on a cross and as we have a moment together in peace just to look at the Bible I want to summarise it like this 
Jesus was sent. Christians are sent. Take joy. Okay? Let's, let's try that. And of course, on Remembrance Sunday, we, we deliberately recall the thousands of men and women who have been sent from this church, from this neighborhood, and from this country to meet early deaths. And I've, just, I've called this sermon, Sent Like Lambs Among Wolves, because that's one of the phrases Jesus uses here to describe being sent. So first thing, Jesus was sent. I just want to show you that in, in black and white. Chapter 951, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And you might say, well, hang on, that doesn't say he was sent. Uh-huh. But later on, chapter 10, verse 16, if you want to follow with me, he's speaking to his followers, 10, verse 16, and he says, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. See? So this is Jesus' whole self-understanding. I have been sent. I have to do what I was sent to do. You will never understand Christianity unless you get that. I meet a lot of people, especially door knocking, I meet a lot of people who I say to them, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, 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 I believe in Jesus. He's the son of God. Okay. But they've got no concept. It's like they've read the first half of the gospel, which is great, don't get me wrong. But from this moment onwards, Jesus says, I'm the son of God who was sent to do a job. So you won't get me unless you get that. Jesus was sent by the Father. It's like he wasn't just saying, mm, I fancy having a go at the presidency. You know, maybe I'll take a tilt at the White House and see if I can do it. Actually, the Father sent him. He had a date with a cross on a hill and a Roman centurion with a set of nails. And this is a crucial moment in Luke's gospel. Let me just try and bring it out for you. There are 24 chapters in Luke's gospel and If I put that there, can you see it? It's the story God intended us to have. In fact, he gave us four Gospels to underline that fact. And in chapters 4 to 9, you get the introduction in chapters 1 to 3. But in chapters 4 to 9, you get the revelation of Jesus' identity. That's, that's who he is. In chapters 9 to 19, which we're entering now, you get the teaching and the journeying on the way to Jerusalem. Actually, in the bit that we're entering now, you get fewer miracles. We've had most of the miracles in Luke's gospel, and we're about to get more of the parables. There are 17 parables in this section, 14 of which are uh, Luke's unique contribution to the Bible. And then in this bit, you get the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Or, if you need a quick way to remember it, I found this useful. Chapters 4 to 9, that's about who Jesus is. Chapters 9 to 19, that's about the new way of salvation that he's opening up. I'm doing this new thing. I'm going to refute the Pharisees when they try to bring their old way of earning salvation. I'm doing a new thing, opening up salvation for people. And and then at the end of the gospel, Jesus, they slew him. He was slain. And thankfully... He was also raised. So uh, slew and few is at the end of the gospel. See? So if, it, if it's useful, then uh, who knew slew and few is the story of our saviour. Jesus was sent. Second thing, Christians are sent. And I want to just point that out to you. You get that again and again in this great story this morning. For instance, there are these three sections 
starting in verse 52. It says, He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him. But you see, he sent them. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. And there's this feisty moment where James and John want to call down fire from heaven to destroy them. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. It's a good reminder for us as Christians that we're sent to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus will one day bring fire and judgment and justice and he'll sort out all the dictators and the warmongers. Our job is to prepare the way for him with words of persuasion, not with violence and destruction. Or then in verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go. You see, he's sending him and proclaim the kingdom of God. There are these three sections in quick succession in in this moment. And you might think to the poor old guy who just wanted to bury his dad, you might think, oh, come on, it's a bit rough. Let him bury his dad and go to the funeral. Well, it's a good reminder that Jesus must come first. In those days, they would bury the dead immediately. So in the hot climate of the Middle East, if you didn't bury someone straight away, they would stink and rot. And there was no refrigeration or morgue. So you had to get them in the ground. And it's likely that if this man is standing saying to Jesus, I think my my dad is going to die at some point soon, and maybe he was ill, he's he's probably asking, do you mind if I stick at home while I I stay around for an indefinite time, and then I'll come and follow you? And it seems like that's what Jesus is responding to when he says, no, you must come and follow me. It's a good reminder that there is something even more important than our own blood family, which is proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, the the Lord sends some more people, you see. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. So Christians are sent, you see. I don't think there's any getting around it. These are individual examples, and I don't think we have to obey every detail, particularly in the In chapter 10, you know when he's saying, okay, don't take any spare sandals and not take a bag with you. I don't think you'd be wrong if you went on a mission trip or to do some evangelism and you took a spare pair of shoes. I think these were particular instructions for these 72 on their trip. But the normal expectation seems to be that Christians are sent to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come. So look, if you pray with someone for their healing, let's say someone's ill and you get the chance to say, can I pray for you? And they say yes. If God heals that person wonderfully, then the kingdom of God has come. Or if we offer people Jesus and they don't want to hear about it, that's also to be expected. And yet we can also say, like in verse 11, yeah, but the kingdom of God has come near you. I have offered you the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord. And some towns and some people just won't want to know. You know, like he mentions Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum in verses 13 onwards. But we get to offer them repentance while there's still time. A few of us have been door knocking for about four years now and um, try and go out um, every week and offer Jesus to the people in the streets of our parish and we often pray with them if we can. It's fascinating actually, now that we've done some data crunching, I can tell you which is the most responsive street <laughs> around here to the kingdom of God. Do you want to know? Yeah, you do. You. Effingham Road is the most res- responsive street. 25 people on Effingham Road. When we asked, do you want us to pray for them, pray for you? They were like, yes. And 13 people on Effingham Road, when we said, do you want a Bible? They were like, yes, please. So um, 
there's something going on on Effingham Road. And I can also tell you the least responsive street to the kingdom of God. But I'm not going to because <laughs> that would be a bit rotten, wouldn't it? But uh, you know, there are some positive responses and some negative. And Jesus teaches us to expect that as we go around being sent. In Luke's gospel, there's like this big um, sucking in of resources, in fact, of Jesus towards Jerusalem. He is sent towards Jerusalem. But then in his sequel, Luke writes the sequel, which is called Acts in the Bible, and there's this big bang. So Christians just start getting sent. They're sent out. They're sent um, from Jerusalem to Samaria, Judea, and all the ends of the earth. So they're continually being sent after the cross. And now, my friends, so we've seen, we've seen Jesus was sent. Christians are sent. And now I want you to take joy. It says in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Each of those 72 followers could write a best-selling memoir. You know, they could host a Christian podcast. They could tell stories like you wouldn't believe about the things that they got up to on that trip. And when they come back filled with righteous joy, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That caused me to scratch my head this week. I was like, what do you mean by that, Jesus? The commentaries seem to say Jesus saw that while they were on their trip. So while they were going out proclaiming the name of Jesus and demons were submitting in Jesus' name, there was some sort of thing that Jesus saw about the, the Satan being taken down. Like, a bit like in Job when um, Satan is allowed to some extent to approach God, but then he's never ultimately in control. You know, his comeuppance is always coming to him. So he seems to have got some of his comeuppance on this trip as these 72 went out and proclaimed Jesus. So I think that's what's going on there. Satan took a hit that day, that week. And there's joy in that. But Jesus actually doesn't want them to take joy in their ministry. Because ministry is too variable. This has been so significant for me. And so can I share it with you? If, as I'm tempted to do, you put your joy in your church ministry or in the thing that you do for God, it can, it can go up and down. You know, it's an, it's, it can have really high points. And then it can have really low points. I dare not tether my joy to that because it fluctuates too much. I preached at a church in, elsewhere in London last week, which is why I couldn't be with you all. They were having their 10th anniversary and I, um, I got to preach that sermon. It was a real privilege. And um, I tried to say to them, look guys, as you look ahead, 10 years is a wonderful thing, celebrate that. But as you look ahead, don't tether your joy to the success of the church. Because it could grow or not. Things could be awesome or terrible. And I encourage them not to look to their ministry success, but to God who never changes. And that's what Jesus is doing here. You know, he points the disciples to something that never changes, which is that your names are written in heaven. And that you've got no eraser for that. That's not going to be scrubbed out. It's not like God changes his mind and thinks, oh, I made a mistake with that one. I'll take them away. No, it, he's written that there. In fact, he says four unchangeable things here, which never change. So before we finish, can I just point these four things out to you that you are to take joy in? The first is exactly that, heaven. Because verse 20 says, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that glorious? If we can raise the money today, then we'll have written on the wall out there the, the names of the people who gave their lives for 
this country. And that will be a good thing. How much more glorious is the plaque in heaven that has your name on it? <laughs> and Jesus didn't say, can I have a bit of money to contribute to this project? Could you all stump up some cash like I did today? He, he says, let me pay everything and I'm going to write your name in some sort of golden pen in my register. And he's expecting you. And there's no ifs or buts, is there? There's no mention of having to earn it, no mention of having to pay your debts or atone for it yourself. He just says, I'm going to write your name in heaven. Take joy in that. The second thing, he, an unchanging thing, is the Father. So in verse 21, he says, at, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? You get Father, very intimate, with Lord of heaven and earth, which is very powerful. Jesus is drawing out the fact that these religious know-it-alls of his day, who are usually the Pharisees, they couldn't see the new way of salvation. They just didn't get it. And yet it was often the father revealing the new way of salvation to children or to fishermen or to prostitutes, unexpected people that brought the greatest joy. You can take joy in a heavenly father today who continues to turn the world upside down. He loves to bring the revelation of himself to the poor and the unlikely. Like at a prayer meeting recently, we were praying for India. And we heard that in India, the most responsive people to the gospel at the moment apparently are the Dalit people. And in India's caste system, they are the, the very bottom rung of the ladder. They're usually despised and downtrodden and treated badly. But in God's eternal joy, he is revealing himself most at the moment to the Dalit class in India. Isn't that wonderful? It's what God loves to do. Heaven, Father, Son. That's the third thing to take joy in because he never changes. Verse 22 says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is saying, you can't know the Father. You can't know the invisible God of all the world. I do. And all of you do because I'm going to choose to reveal him to you as well. Isn't that amazing? The son wants to reveal the impossible to you. The living God, the almighty father, the immortal one, the Lord of heaven and earth. So take joy in heaven, father, son. And finally, the privilege you have over prophets and kings. Because in verse 23 he says, Privately to his disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not hear it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. And I was reading about um, Tutankhamun this week. You know, it's 100 years since Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered and Howard Carter was in Egypt and he was being sponsored by Lord Carnarvon who was bankrolling his operation. And apparently when he discovered this sealed tomb that had been sealed for th 3,000 more years, he sent a telegram to Carnarvon saying, I found something, I found a sealed tomb, come quickly. And so Carnarvon rushes to Egypt and on the day they break the seals and they go into the tomb, Carter goes in first with a lamp and Carnarvon's behind him and apparently Carter went into the Tutankhamun's tomb, the first person in for 3,000 years and he's holding up his lamp to see around and Carnarvon's behind him itching as the patron to see what's in there and, he, and Carnarvon says, can you see anything? And Carter goes, yes, wonderful things. That was the first glimpse he had of all that treasure and all, all those Egyptian objects. I want to say to you, the prophets and kings 
It's like they're straining at your door, you know, and saying, can you see anything? And you get to say, as you read your Bible, as you hear about the Lord Jesus, you come to communion as we will in a moment. Wonderful things. It's almost like David and Solomon and Samuel and Isaiah are queuing up as you sit at your kitchen table and you open your Bible tomorrow morning. And, and I can imagine them saying, can you see anything? And you say, oh, I see the new covenant. I see the sacrificial lamb slain for the, for the sins of the world. I see the greater Solomon. I have the words of assurance. I see it. My goodness, they're straining every muscle fiber to see what you see and to hear what you hear. Take joy, my friends, in the eternal things, heaven, Father, Son, and in your privilege above the prophets and kings. All of us are naturally, we all have a heart that's two sizes too small, you see, because of sin. We're like the Grinch, and we need the Holy Spirit to come and explode our hearts with joy in eternal things, not just with the things of this earth. If you tether your joy to the things of this earth, like your health, it will always fade. If you tether it to another human being, they will inevitably disappoint you or die. If you tether it to a car or a set of clothes or to some gadget, it will break or rust. If you tether it to eternal things, like Jesus is saying, it will never wear out. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come to you today and we want our hearts to be bigger. We want the joy that Jesus is offering us here. So please would you do that work in us by the Holy Spirit. We pray for this joy that is talked about. And please do that work in each of us, even through the hard times, as we set our hearts on our Lord Jesus Christ and our Father in heaven. Amen.